0: Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading.
1: Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book
0: served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 115, where we are covering Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And with me today is that lonely, misunderstood monster hoy.
2: Ah. Actually, I'm a nameless wretch. is the name of the mad scientist who created me?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good distinction. Thank you. I'm I'm sure people make that mistake a lot. And uh, with me today, um, or with us today, we are also joined by the co-host of Podside Picnic and a writer whose short fiction can be found in several anthologies, including Speculative Fiction for Dreamers, a Latinx anthology, and Uncanny Magazine, issue 30, Disabled People Destroy Fantasy. Carlo Jaeger Rodriguez, Carlo, welcome to the show. Uh,
0: hello, thanks for having me on, and the crowd goes wild. Yeah, um, Carlo. <laughs> or, or, or there was much rejoicing. You know, there you go. Those are the two. We're on the spectrum here. Um, thanks for having me on. This is really exciting, and you gave me a great opportunity to um, revisit this, uh, this book. I don't. I think I haven't read this book in probably twenty years.
1: Amazing. Um, and the good news is there's also no mob with pitchforks or torches that came out when I said your name. So we should be safe for the time being. Yep. Yes, yes. Uh, well, you know,
0: I, I do. I, I was gave, given a name by my creators uh, <laughs> who did not become disgusted uh, upon my countenance when I was, uh, when I was born. <laughs> so uh, that 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 is a point in my favor. It go. is, yes, yes. <laughs>
2: Whatever trials and tribulations we have may have suffered since then. That is not making it.
1: So, Carlo, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into gaming? Oof,
0: um, you know, I, I was just talking to uh, a couple of the uh, people that um, that I, I, I regularly record with uh, last night about uh, how how often when I was uh, like in high school. Uh, a lot of, I, I was, I, I would read a lot of d stuff. You know, I, I sadly have the cliche, you know, introduction. Uh, you, you sort of start with d and and then branch out from there. And uh, I, I was sort of like bemoaning the fact that during high school, it was a lot of reading about d and but not actually playing with anybody. Or, you know, like there wasn't a group. And that only came <laughs> – it only came after sort of like adulthood to a certain degree um, where, uh, you know, y- you actually have some control over uh, how you can get from here to there, <laughs> meet up with friends and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, D&D was big. Um, I mean, I-, I suppose it was the Lord of the Rings to d d pipeline for me. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I-, I had, you know, like late 70s uh, – when I was still like in middle school, uh, I guess I'm dating myself there. Um, somebody showed up with the original blue box D and D basic. And uh, I was just sort of like captivated. It's like, there's a little booklet in here with these. Some of the artwork was really cool. Some of it was not exactly the best, but it was there. Uh, you know, I could play a Hobbit. And this is back before there was the, uh, I guess, the copyright issue uh, happening, and then they changed it to Halfling. So also, uh, I just found it really hilarious that they give you like these just generic ass pieces of plastic <laughs> that you'd have to color in the numbers. Right, I don't know right. if anyone had, had that With experience. the white crayon. Yeah. Yep. With the white crayon. At least they included the white crayon. Right, because, right. you know. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I, I sort of eventually started playing a little bit more often. Um, D&D is still very much uh, part of part of gaming for me. And, you know, I, I understand some of the, the, the recent uh, criticisms of it and so on. And that's fine. I, I get it. it. It makes perfect sense to me. Uh, let's make it inclusive to everyone. Uh, but I also, like, I came back to D&D after... Um, after getting involved with like uh, white wolf and the entire storyteller uh, series, specifically vampire and mage. I don't know if you, you ever had the experience to play that, but those are yeah. lots mm-hmm. and lots of fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I have a, a, a small uh, story about, um, the, the offshoot of, of vampire, the masquerade, which is the, um, uh, mind's eye theater. I did a LARPing session once, <laughs> it, it, and and this was in so this is in Puerto Rico, the midst of summer, and everyone except me was dressed see I was dressed as sort of like what I thought a nosferado would be, which is like a loose crappy shirt uh everyone else was dressed to the nines in like <laughs> goth like black goth you know like crushed velvet and like <laughs> you guys are dying in there. And they were like, I was surrounded by sweaty vampires in a hole in the wall bar <laughs> for most of that night. I eventually like told the, the guy who the the game got away from, uh, I told him I was going to head out and I, just in time because it was matrix time. When I left, uh, <laughs> there's a couple of guys showing up with like, like full length, ankle length, uh, leather
1: dusters. I was like, Wow, that's commitment. I amazing. <laughs> that's a lot of that's a lot of sweat. Right, right. Similarly, in in 1992, I was 12 years old, and I was living in Bremerton, Washington, and I had dyed black hair, mm. and I started um, I started doing live action vampire LARPing. Um, maybe I was 13, 12 or 13. And um, I still have my certificate of the embrace from when that <laughs> happened. And I was the youngest uh, official member of the Camarilla, which was like the, the Northwest, like the, the, like the Washington State, or maybe it's just that little region of Washington State's live action vampire group. Um, So I was very much involved in that world. And then when I was 14, I kind of started my own little like vampire LARPing group with friends from my junior high school. Oh, awesome. (laughs)
2: And and so Carlo, uh, I listened to, I think the first two episodes of your sort of crap episode subseries, And you talked about it was actually quite difficult to get your hands on a lot of like speculative fiction when you were younger in uh, Puerto Rico. And was it the same for gaming materials as well?
0: (sighs) Well, so... um, when I was younger. Yes. Um, once I had like, by the time I was like, maybe 21, uh, you know, mid twenties, um, there was, uh, a, 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 uh, sort of like what we, what we would call like a flagship gaming, you know. actually it was just a comic book shop that, um, one of my, uh, eventually one of my best buds, uh, was working at, and he had, uh, apparently a good taste and a good idea of what would sell uh and he was the one that brought like white wolf stuff and and through white wolf stuff a lot of like uh i i don't i don't know if you guys remember um they also had like their spin-off Printing uh, concern where they would bring in like these anthologies they mm-hmm. reprinted like Elric
2: the Moorcock hardcovers is right the um, Fat from the Grey Mouse or mm-hmm. yeah yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. so. The yeah the Libra ones the, the Libra ones were great with uh with like monochromatic uh, cover with uh, Mignola art on It, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was great. yeah some of them directly connected to the story like the world of darkness but some mm-hmm. of them were more uh, further afield more horror right. in general mm-hmm. uh, I was just picking up like some of the uh, Borderlands um, anthologies that they had originally printed and they're now you know available as eBooks and whatnot. So it's, mm-hmm. it was really interesting to, to sort of revisit that and, and think about that for a little bit too. Um, yeah. Like, oh my God, vampire was so big for a while. So right. I mean, it
2: just had all the mind share from like the, Mid 90s to like, you know, 2001 or so, or something like that, you know. Just. Well, I,
0: I, we, we got, we even got into, um, do you remember, uh, it was originally called The Insensitive Jihad, but, uh, turned into Vampire the Eternal Struggle, uh, the card game. Mm. And, uh, that was a really interesting card game. And part of the reason it sort of became really big with us, at least, and I think it, it was pretty big all around, was because, um, it's shit. Uh, it's not Andrew Garfield. That's the actor. <laughs> Richard <laughs> Garfield, I believe is the name of the, uh, the designer that did magic the gathering originally. Mm-hmm. And so he had done uh vampire, the eternal struggle. And that was a really interesting one because it was more of a game where you had to manage resource, uh, like as management resource. And part of the problem was that every time you would uh, make an action or send, minions to go attack, you know, your, your other players, uh, that would cost you, you know, blood, uh, which was like a stand in for influence and, and standing within the Camarilla. Mm. Uh, so anyway, it was it, it, lots of fun and lots of, you, you have to have either very good friends or people that won't necessarily hate you for,
1: like betraying them on (laughs) at the gaming table. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of player buy-in. Yeah. So Carlo, one of the things we like to ask our guests is if there's any uh, pieces of uh, fiction or nonfiction that you would recommend our listeners check out if they want inspiration for their gaming. Uh, What do you got for us? I mean, uh, one of the, so One of the series that really,
0: really opened up um, for me, one of my favorite uh, D&D settings, which is uh, Dark Sun, uh, was Brazen Gambit, like the Lynn Abbey uh, series. She had like Brazen Gambit, Cinnabar Shadows, and I think it's uh, The Rise and Fall of a Dragon King, um, which... Brazen Gambit is really good, like for a basically a D&D tie in, which is I mean, I could do uh, dozens of crap book episodes just covering some of the <laughs> some of yeah. the D&D tie ins because they're they're not very good, but mm-hmm. some of them are exceptionally good. And cool. it's really sort of a cra- crap shoot sometimes.
2: Mm-hmm. And she was already an established writer because she was working on the Thieves' World series, mm-hmm. and she was co-writing with Lynn, uh, Robert Lynn Aspirin with a lot of stuff. So, so. um
1: I don't she, know that I've like, actually officially acknowledged this on our podcast. I've never read a D and D novel. Oh, well, I've know. never read a single book in Dragonlance or Forgotten Realms or yeah. none of that.
2: Yeah. The only one I've read is uh, Quiet Keep, so that's the only actual D and D tie-in I've read. So. Oh, so
1: hoy, yeah. oh, you're you're in a similar about that. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So moving this over to a conversation about Frankenstein, let's start with which edition of the book we're working with. Carlo, what do you have today?
0: I was uh, I was dipping into the audiobook that's narrated by Dan Stevens. Uh, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Downton Abbey and
1: Legion uh, alum Dan Stevens uh, does a rather good job, too. And do you happen to know if his recording is the 1918 or I'm sorry, 1818 or 1831 text? Ooh, that is
0: a good question. Let me see if I can pull that up here because it's honestly that is a
1: very good question. Mm -hmm. Well, while you're looking that up, I'll go ahead and share which I'm working with. Um, I'm reading the Penguin Books um, 1818 text, and it's got this really beautiful cover that was illustrated by Marcy Washington. And it's got Frankenstein looking into a pool of water and seeing his reflection. Um, Very beautiful, very beautiful cover. And in addition to that, I also listened along to the LibriVox audiobook recording of the 1818 text that is available on YouTube. Um, And um, the reader is a woman named Corey Samuel. And it was a really beautiful Hmm. reading. Corey, what are you working with?
2: All right, I found at Housing Works, uh, Yay Housing Works bookstore, the uh, second Norton Critical Edition, which is also the 1818 text, and there's also like 300 pages of supplemental materials, which are some from the period and some you know, more recent criticism, including why should you read the 1818 version, which actually up until very recently was less common than the 1831 version. Um, kind of a lost version and then for comparison purposes i think jeff you and i both looked at the same uh web page which is a gentleman named uh what was it edward uh i had somewhere uh anyway he had uh, a lot of the comparison texts there uh edward james
1: yes at Edwardfjames.com. he's got this great blog post that breaks down the difference between the two texts The 1818 edition is the original version of it when she had published it anonymously in 1831 after it it had become kind of a hit, um, especially like in the theater world, like there had been uh, theatrical adaptations of it. In 1831, she revisited it and made quite a few changes to, well, maybe not quite a few, but she made some changes to it. And that is the version, the 1831 version, is the one that most people have read, as Hoy said, until recently. Mm -hmm. Um, In the past decade or two, there has been this push to go back to the original 1818 text, this idea that it more matches what she was originally going for. Mm -hmm. Um, So, and it's interesting, and since Hoy and I know about the differences in the text, we'll discuss that. But um Carlo, just doing a quick Googling, Google search, I think you're working with the 1831 text. Yeah. Mm. yeah.
0: It, it, somebody in the comments was immediately, not the 1818 version. Uh, yeah. So, yeah.
2: Right. And then I so for my comparison copy, I do have a copy of the 1831, but it's the Bernie Wrightson one from Marvel Comics.
0: Oh, Right. I, Gorgeous. Uh, yeah. Bernie Wrightson, um, a complete madman. Just look at that line work on mm-hmm. every one of those pages. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh,
2: Robert Coleman, who was in our book club, had an even more beautiful copy with hardcover and like really, really deep, beautiful black inks. And I think it was a, a recent reissue. Uh, yeah. And then I also have a – and I have had this copy, I think, probably since it came out. And I just bounced off of it many times. And then I also came up with this uh, book of some of the Lost Sketches
1: awesome and hoy do we have a high word of the day yeah i think we're gonna go with
2: the one from adam stires which is execrate which is to curse to uh <laughs> let's see curse revile swear fuel ex- fuel or express great loathing for execrate you can always have your wizard execrate someone or the the villagers can execrate the wizard
0: <laughs> <laughs> also true yeah <laughs> Mutual, mutually assured execration. And they,
2: and there you go. <laughs> Carla, do you have a candidate there? Or uh, well, actually, like I said, almost every other word in the book could be a... Yeah, like
0: I, 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 there, there's so many. It, it's, it's part of the book's charm, I feel. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I guess we can head on into the library. Carlo. what did you think of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? Um... You know,
0: I, I I mentioned it before. I'll, I'll I think it bears repeating. I had not uh, sort of read this in twenty years. It is really, um, it's really interesting. Apart from style and sort of like the gothic uh, stylistic, um, sort of like the the abundance of description and stuff like that. Other than that, it really it reads almost uh, very modern, you know, considering that this is a, you know, 200 something year old book. Um, And part of, I feel like part of it is the fact, and I, I don't want to, you know, if if I'm jumping ahead, uh, please let me know. But part of it is the fact that um, she chooses wisely to not get too far into like the, the technology aspects um, regarding how the creature or the nameless wretch is created, um, it, which is really, it, it's, it's something that I, I I was thinking about just earlier today and thinking, would any contemporary sort of modern science fiction and fantasy writer uh, do that and just mm-hmm. withhold the tech? Because a lot of, I feel like a lot of, especially science fiction writers, the the attraction is, you know, describing, oh, this technology, you know, the right, technology the is the building. hero.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Well, certainly, definitely the mid-20th century science fiction sort of the Campbell, Joseph Campbell influence, Ryan, mm-hmm. would, would we just like say, no, you can't do that at all. You have to have a very plausible scientific explanation. And even now in fantasy, we have to have these like magic systems that are very worked out, this, these worlds that are, you know – you know, allowing for the fact that magic exists at all, obviously. But
0: um <laughs> yeah. Brandon Sanderson, we're we're looking at you. <laughs>
1: yeah, and I actually I felt like it I, I feel like she walked that line really well. You know, here we have she's she's talking about how Victor Frankenstein is reading all of this kind of like these these like ancient schools of thought that are no longer valid in this scientific era. Um and but then he ends up Uh, meeting some actual scientists and learning some chemistry and discovering more about electricity. And I think Mary Shelley is kind of exploring this idea that in this contemporary, 1818, contemporary um, scientific world, we really discount all of like the ancient thinkers. And I think she's kind of saying that if we can combine the... the, the the thoughts of our ancient past with our kind of contemporary scientific thought, we can maybe come up with some really fantastic and exciting things. And then there's kind of this uh, Im- implication that this has to do with um, electricity. And especially in the 1831 edition, uh, she talks about galvanization, which at the time was something that was um, thought to be something that could reanimate dead flesh. Uh, so we don't really know how it works, but I'm okay with that, especially because Victor Frankenstein is is telling this story on this ship in the Arctic and is specifically does not want the world to know exactly what he did because he doesn't want this getting out. And like, yes, that's kind of a cheat for Mary Shelley, but I think it's a very plausible and believable cheat, given how this what's happening in the story. So for me, I had full buy-in with it. It didn't it didn't ruin my suspension of disbelief at all, not knowing how it worked.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I also um, one of the things that that really struck me is how sort of the, the breadth of different uh, things that she's weaving together in the story, right? Because um, you know, we we could we could, you know. She, I believe the the original subtitle to the book, or maybe it's the 1831 subtitle to the book, is a modern Prometheus. So yeah. she's for both. She's she's drawing upon Greek myth, but also along the way, you know, you can see. And I don't know if she was doing this on purpose, but I, as a reader, you know, know about the Golem. Mm-hmm. I also know about homunculi. Uh, especially when we're talking about old alchemy and stuff like that, like that was one of the the projects, right? Being able to alchemically create life, mm-hmm. uh, and and how weird, like really, how very strange. Um, the, the processes that are described therein are, you know, like, you know, because there's a lot of weird, um, confluences happening in alchemy where it's like, well, it's a little bit of, you know, whatever the religion is at the, in the area, yeah in a lot of Europe, it's Christianity mixed in with rational quote unquote thought that Mm -hmm. has been, you know, sort of distilled from the ancients, you know, the Mm -hmm. Greeks or the Romans usually, um, uh, but along the way we also get a little bit about a little bit of Coleridge with Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and like a frozen like all of this is happening uh on a ship that is um she she isn't really talking about it at the time I think it's bef- it's predating um the big push to find the northwest passage but uh, maybe I'm wrong. Uh,
2: uh, I mean, they're starting to, but they're certainly not like it's pre pre Franklin expedition, pre like the very sort of very organized, uh, you know, uh, very yeah, it, industrialized, you know. Uh, yeah, they're they're, to do it. Sh-
0: they're starting to think about it, but by then it hasn't become like a, a rut that has yeah. been worn worn down mm-hmm. as a, as a route that um, everyone else thinks along the same lines in mm-hmm. uh, that they got to find the Northwest Passage, you know, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, but yeah, uh, Coleridge with uh, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, as well as, um, well, yeah, uh, and the other stuff that I talked about. Right. So it, it's really fascinating. Like she she was able to weave together so many different strands and sort of remix it in a way that becomes very fresh.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, this is very much an in conversation with many, it seems like, okay, this is a 200-year-old book. So, we think, oh, it's just an old book, but it's actually very much in conversation with a lot of the developments of the time, modernity, as expressed, like it's, a, it's, you know, science of the time versus emotion and art of the romantic movement that's emerging as a reaction to the enlightenment. Um, but one specific thing, and a lot of the members in the book club, which we had before the show touched upon this, but... One thing that we didn't touch upon, um, but you just made me think about, she talks quite a bit about the Americas and how and colonialism in a way, how it was a tragedy that like the Incan and Aztecs empire were destroyed by the conquistadors. There's at least three or four citations in there um, that she's talking about there, and the original version of the book, Clairval, is a very um, uh, sort of benign. Uh, like almost like a soulmate to Frankenstein. And in the 30, 1831 version, Henry Clerval, the best friend is like sort of a neo-colonial. Well, actually he's an actual colonialist. He wants to go to India and he's learning all, and Persia and, you know, bring the European enlightenment over there and, you know, commercial power and all that other stuff like that. So this is conversations conversation that she's having with all these things that are happening in in quote unquote, the modern world of the time, you know?
1: Yeah. And I, I, I do have two quotes around that. One is if this rule were always observed, if no man allowed any pursuit whatsoever to interfere with the tranquility of his domestic affections, Greece had not been enslaved, Caesar would have spared his country, America would have been discovered more gradually, and the empires of Mexico and Peru would not have been destroyed. And then there's another one where, um, another section of the book where she says, I heard... Of th- I heard of the discovery of the American hemisphere and wept with Safi over the hapless fate of its original inhabitants. So it's fascinating seeing this like very, um, a kind of provocative statement about what colonialism is doing to the US. But this then makes me think about one of the, change, one of the major changes to the text that I think is really interesting. In the original 1818 text, Elizabeth is Victor's cousin. In the 1831 text, people thought it was creepy that he was going to marry his cousin, so she changes it to make it less creepy. But in my mind, it's a lot more creepy, because (laughs) what she ends up changing it to is now Victor's mother was traveling through Italy and found this poor family, this poor impoverished family, but she found that amongst this poor impoverished family... There was this little blonde hair, blue eyed little angel amongst them, and how could she be living in poverty in Italy with these like swarthy people? So clearly, she needs to be rescued. And it turns out that there's a, a story too, where this girl was the the child of like a um, of a of German aristocrats that mm. had somehow ended up in the possession of these people. So she takes this kid and brings them back home. And then she says to young Victor, Victor, I have a present for you. And then presents (laughs) Elizabeth. And she's like, she she is yours. And when you grow up, you two can get married. And I'm like, you made something that was like mildly creepy. And you made this a lot more creepy. (laughs) And it's funny, when I was telling the story to my partner, he was telling me about how it reminded him of, um, in Fight Club, apparently, like there's like a scene where in the book, um, marla and the main dude are like talking and in the book apparently she says i want to have your abortion but in the movie like they thought that was too much so they changed it to i haven't been fucked like that since grade school which again <laughs> is like another example of like they changed it to make it like not bad but that's way worse <laughs> that is way worse
0: well they, they they went back and forth speaking of that line they went back and forth uh several times and then the the studio wanted them to change it Uh, To something else, and they they actively. I think Brad Pitt and uh, Fincher actively with with um, shit. What is her name? Helen Uh, Bottom Carter. Helen Helen Bottom Carter uh, actively worked together to get an even worse line, (laughs) so that when they (laughs) they they showed them the dailies, like Jesus Christ, no, go back to the one with grade school. Well, (laughs) never mind.
1: Oh, geez. Yeah. yeah so ridiculous.
0: <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. That you're absolutely correct. It's like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and right. Right.
2: Elizabeth very much now becomes this weird possession, whereas it was yeah. really a pure act of benevolence, even if she is his cousin, because it's, it's really is uh, Frankenstein's father's niece, right? In the 1818. <laughs> yeah, <yeah>. 18, <laughs> and she's actually has a more agency and she's more of the conscience of the book in my mind in the 1818 version than in the 1831 version Um, she's very much concerned and wants to believe in justine's innocence and then uh, justine is resigned to her fate but she's not like oh it's all in the hands of god whereas in 1831 version, there's a couple sentences where she puts it in like oh it's the hands of god and the whole 1831 version becomes much more about like predestination as opposed to free will in the 18
1: you know yeah And I had never read this book before, and I'm a big fan of James Whale. He's the openly gay filmmaker from the 1920s and 30s who made the original Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, and The Old Dark House. And I knew that he had really loved this story because of its kind of queer subtext. And I'm sure Mary Shelley didn't write it this way, but reading it first off um especially in the 1818 text um Victor and um uh Sh- Sh- what is his name sure.
2: Henri Clairvaux, or
1: Claval yeah, yeah. yeah like they're basically boyfriends mm-hmm. and
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would I would also um probably point out that um not to not to interrupt you but but I would also point out that the his revulsion towards uh, his creation, yes, uh, reads very much like um, uh, from the very little I've I've delved into like queer theory, like this idea that somehow um, by sort of coming out or uh, admitting to yourself that you are gay, that mm-hmm. you are then there's
1: a, a period of sort of loathing that uh, sometimes yes. appears in in. And queer literature. Exactly. Thank you. That's totally where I'm going with this too. Because Victor Frankenstein is somebody through through youthful curiosity ends up pursuing this thing that ends up turning into this very, like, secret, shameful thing that he's terrified that if the world finds out what he's done, his entire life is going to come crumbling down. And that very much feels like that kind of queer angst of, like, the early 20th century as well. So I can see why this why this text was also something that was very much um, turned to and beloved by the... Um, by the gay community at that time as well, because I think it really taps into that beautifully. I don't think that's what Mary Shelley was intending to do, mm-hmm. but I think it, it definitely works on that level well, as well. well. It
2: speaks to how powerful the text is, that it can encompass all these meanings, even if it's, you know.
1: Uh, Although I will yeah. I will point
0: out that a book that came out uh, uh, s- several decades later, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, mm-hmm. is definitely tapping yep. into that. Because yep. that, like, Mr. Hyde is, in fact, the hidden sort of queer persona of Dr. Jekyll. Totally. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, it's just an interesting sort of like, uh, I, I have to wonder if um, if Stevenson was, was drawing upon that as well and saw that in this text. Mm-hmm. Because I'm guessing that it was sort of, it had to have been in the air
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: and he must have read it. Sure. Yeah.
2: And I think there's also an interesting thing to be drawn upon about the sort of this, uh, aesthetics something that is not aesthetically pleasing is therefore evil i'm, I'm not saying that mary shelley believes that but the, the clearly frankenstein believes that about his creation right he when he's building it he's not thinking about it but you know and i made it i thought it beautiful but then when he sees the thing that he's actually created oh no that's horrible that's gross the grotesque yeah. but it's actually yeah. a thing that came of him so it's self-loathing also you know um yeah yeah and- well, I,
0: it's it's also I, I feel like um, there she's also tapping into uh, not not to say that it's not that but I, I think it's also tapping into the creative process right mm-hmm. um, the the creative process when when I have like the the story that I I, I never write but stays in my brain it's perfect mm-hmm. it's infallible there's nothing wrong with it the minute I create it it's full of fucking flaws mm-hmm. and. Yeah. And at that point, you know, you either have to embrace it or, or not. Right. And be and like, oh well, no, it's out mind.
2: in the world. Right. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly
1: right.
2: <laughs> you know, it's out people in the world. People are having and it's, their
1: own thoughts about it. <laughs> <right. so. laughs> yeah.
2: You know, and, and people are throwing rocks at it and chasing it with pitchforks and torches. <laughs> <You> know, <so. laughs>
1: yes. Also true. Also true. But then it's interesting that she has this like real kind of humanity and like this real kind of uh, emotionally nuanced view of the world around her. But then in some ways, she's also still very much a product of her time um, and a product of her upbringing. Because one of the things that I notice is whenever we are supposed to, as readers, have any affection or affinity for any of the lower class. They are always people who had been previously wealthy and have now fallen (laughs) upon hard times. That is the case of the 1831 revision of Elizabeth. That is the case of the family in poverty, that Frankenstein's living within their shed and watching through the crack what what their lives are Mm -hmm. looking Mm -hmm. like. We're we're not allowed to just know poor people who've been poor their whole life right, right. and have any affection for them. <laughs> right, right. And That's even not an it, opportunity she gives us.
2: Yeah, even when they're talking about Justine, they make a comment about how well bred she is and mm-hmm. and um you know, because Switzerland is is, you know, the distance between servant and master is is far closer because it's a republic that she's almost like them. But then yeah. when she breaks that trust or appears to break that trust, she becomes even worse a monster than the actual in the eyes of the, the people. Than the actual creature is in a way, right? Because she's betrayed yeah. this trust. How could she be so horrible? She was taken into this household, and she you know it's you know the monster is just the monster. But she's done this thing that's even worse in some ways, you know.
0: But I also have to think um, along the lines of: uh, Are these supposed to be parallels to? sort of like uh, because uh, oh, the other thing I'd forgotten to mention is that this is like the, the, the frontispiece of this entire uh, book is a, a quote from paradise lost. And mm-hmm. so, you know uh, the creature is then likened, he, it likens himself actually uh, rather than be, I, I, I could have been your Adam, but to you, I am Lucifer. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, uh, you know, the creature decides that, well, you know, if if you're going to view me as completely evil, okay, I'll, I'll adopt that role mm-hmm. and just kill everyone around you. And so to a certain extent, it's the idea of his fallenness mm-hmm. yeah. uh, is then reflected around the people that uh, he, he ends up sort of uh, hanging out with. Or, or implicating <laughs> crimes that he does. Um, so, you know, like to a certain extent, uh, thematically, perhaps in in Shelley's mind, uh, she was drawing a a, a connection between uh, Lucifer's a fallen angel and these people that once were in the firmament have then fallen into p- yeah. poverty. It, it's not, it's not a great one and especially no, I, yeah it, I it think
2: def- you're right no actually you're absolutely correct and there's actually a citation very much towards the end of the book where um, after Frankenstein is dying in the cabin of the ship and the monster's there he goes um, evil thenceforth became my good which is basically a paraphrase of Satan in Paradise Lost saying evil be thou my good mm. so yeah. so it's, it's, she was very much aware of that absolutely uh, yeah
1: so I'm now going to trivialize this beautiful conversation and take it a little bit to the gaming side and ask, can we apply the Gygaxian nine-point alignment system to Victor Frankenstein and his creation? Carla? what are your thoughts on that?
0: Uh, let me th- you know what? I'm, I'm thinking about what Victor's uh, alignment would be. Uh, you know, uh, maybe a little, he's got a little chaos energy, so I'm going to say chaotic neutral. Okay. And uh, the creature would then be chaotic evil, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm. But the thing is that Victor doesn't think he's chaotic neutral. He thinks he's actually <laughs> waffle good. <laughs> uh,
0: that's exactly what a chaotic neutral person would want you to believe. Right, right. <laughs> right, 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 Well, I mean, I, I think I think uh, Victor's a great example of an unreliable narrator. And therefore, yeah, I think he's sort of a little bit too much in his own head. Also, yeah. you know, he, he suffers from that romantic hero uh, disease, which is, I am the goodest boy ever, and I could have never ever done anything wrong. (laughs) Except that one time. But see, the creature did everything else. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: And that's an interesting point that you mentioned about reliable and unreliable narratives. Yes, I definitely think that Victor is unreliable. um, But we have no evidence that the monster is unreliable as a narrator. That everything the monster says actually seems to be true. You know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so that's interesting.
1: And we also find out that when, um, when Walton was writing down Victor Frankenstein's narration, one of the only areas that Victor Frankenstein wanted to really like have him fix up was the parts that he had written down of his creation's narration, where he didn't feel like he had really like fully like um, gotten the grasp of this creature's suffering. So it's also interesting how important it is to Victor Frankenstein that the reader of whoever eventually sees this is going to really fully understand exactly what his creation went through. Mm-hmm. That well, was really I, interesting to me. I, I also found that fascinating
0: because it's sort of like this weird, it's a, it's a bit of, uh, it's so, it's got nested stories. Mm-hmm. Um Within it, and then it's also like this weird Rashomon uh, structure, where we get Victor's point of view, then we get the creature's point of view, and then we get the captain's point of view to to, as the frames.
2: Right, Right. he's the 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 puzzled peasant from Rashomon by the gate. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting, and and to to think that you know like this is again written two hundred years ago is uh, it's sort of like uh, it, it it. we were talking about like uh earlier about the ideas of the past, and it's really funny to me that uh, Shelley really hit upon the before I guess we would even call it that the myth of progress, right? She's basically, this entire book is sort of, a defiance of this idea that we now have of the myth of progress that, oh, those ideas back in the day, those are bad ideas. Those people were bad people and they were all bad and evil. And they're you know, or, or they were a bunch of ists, you know, they're racist yeah. or classist or, you know, just whatever, a bunch of awful things, but that all happened then we're so much better now. And it's like, yeah, uh, right, right. Uh, maybe. <laughs>
2: right, right. And, and right. and even to the extent of like, when Frankenstein is first reading the sort of alchemical text and his father says, oh, that's trash. And he goes, but if my father had ever explained to me why they were trash, and rather than just saying they were trash, I might not have gone down this route. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right, right. But that's still his good little goodest boy, like offloading stuff uh, to a certain extent. But still, it's it's a it's a... It's a reasonable point, but filtered through his like, oh, it wasn't me, kind of, you know, <laughs> you know, thing.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's it's the it's the um, it's sort of like like you said, it's the alibi of a bad liar, right? Mm-hmm. It's well, if you
1: hadn't stopped me from doing that, right, right. Uh, I wouldn't have done it. And you're like, mm. right. <laughs> and I, I don't think this is actually what was happening, but I I was kind of uh, tickling myself when I was reading the text because that moment where um he destroys the body of the bride that he's created. Um and he's like, I can't do this. It's morally wrong. Um, I was imagining that like he actually just couldn't figure out how to do it again, and this was his way of justifying the fact <laughs> that, like he was just, he just it wasn't working this time. Right,
2: right. Well, that's totally what, like tying to what Carlos said. He was like, that's the, like when you like shoot your wad in your first novel and you have like writer's block. <laughs> like,
0: oh know? shit! <laughs> I thought it was this. Uh, <laughs> I messed up my notes again. Damn it! <laughs> but it, it's it's sort of interesting because um it, it, his his uh his justification for doing that is actually uh born out in a much later work the rur mm. uh, rossum's uh what Carl is it? Universal, Carl yeah the rossum's universal robots mm-hmm. the the robots aren't what we would call robots. They're actually sort of like, uh, like clones or, or sort of created people. Um, and eventually they become, they, they, they can reproduce. They can do anything that humanity can. And therefore yeah. eventually they reproduce long enough for enough that they're like, well, uh, by humanity, we don't need you anymore. Uh, <laughs> which is exactly like, this is something
1: that Shelley was thinking about, you know uh, you know, In 1818, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And speaking of, like, potentially interesting things to do with uh, gaming stuff, I think it would be a really interesting setting to imagine what if Victor Frankenstein had created this bride and his worst fears had come true. And now humanity is, like, enslaved by, or not enslaved necessarily, but at war with these, like, monstrous creations. Like that's one thing that could be interesting. Well, you know, uh, you could always take it to Ravenloft, and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Adam finally got his bride. Right, right. Now, are you more interested in exploring Victor Frankenstein, um, the, the 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 Victor Frankenstein experience, or the creatures' experience? If you're going to try to do this story in a gaming setting, man, you know it. it it's
0: it's really. It's really something because I think that um, the modern sensibility would be to gravitate towards the creature
1: mm-hmm. because
0: he's more of an underdog uh, character, right? Yeah. Uh, but he's like just deranged, like he is completely out of his mind evil about uh, his his sort of um, – his rejection, like the rejection of his personal god <laughs> rejected him and he's like, well – fuck you, I'm going to kill everything. The only everything. thing I
1: can do is murder everybody you've ever known. Right. <laughs> that's, all, that's the only thing you've left me to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know,
0: uh, As Cain, you do. <laughs> Cain seemed to have that idea. All so. right, right. Oh, you, <laughs> right, actually, you like that guy? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Let me show you, buddy. <laughs> right, right. And I think she was very
2: much drawing on the myth of Cain and Abel because, uh, you know, Frankenstein is driven into, the monster is driven into the wilderness the same way that Cain is driven into the wilderness. Mm. Right? Yeah. Sure. Well,
0: I, I think that that's the really fascinating aspect of it that um, it, it, it does without. Like a, a lot of these romantic uh, and, and gothic uh, works, do draw upon uh, sort of the 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 mythology or the folk uh, mythology behind uh, Christianity, but without really. Uh, you know hitting your head over you know, hitting you over the head with it, which is really interesting because then then you can just look at it at a structural level like why does this story work mm. uh, in say Cain and Abel, why does that story work? Oh it, it worked enough that they repeated it at least twice, you know right <laughs> you know right. Jacob and Esau, and um, I'm sure that there's another one that i'm'm I'm, I'm missing right now. But yeah, like uh, sibling rivalry uh, turned mm-hmm. murderous, or and or you know, yeah. like very very trenchantly,
2: um, right. And then either father or creator, uh, not you know, loving or not loving their the children equally. And yeah. and this is also kind of a little bit gnostic, like in uh, um, Frankenstein is a sub creator, he's a flawed creator, um, and so therefore nothing he creates can be perfect either. Right, the monster therefore has to be imperfect because Frankenstein himself is a flawed creator.
1: Right. And one interesting approach I thought you could take to this from a gaming perspective would maybe have it be a two person game with no GM, where one of you is uh, Victor Frankenstein and the other of you is the creation. And like each of you kind of makes a move each time. You'd have to like figure out how that works with the, with, with the rules. But I think that could be a really interesting way to explore this kind of a story. So, so
0: circling back to storyteller games, mm-hmm. Wraith the Oblivion has precisely that dynamic. Mm. Except that you would you would need to separate it out. It wouldn't be like the wraith and, and its Jungian shadow, sort of whispering, you know, like uh, you know, you you suck <laughs> in different <laughs> ways in, in in your ear to break you down. But but I think Hoy was mentioning that um, the creature we we have to believe is true because the creature is Frankenstein's foil, um, and therefore. He, his his strength his armor is in fact um telling the truth the the truth that victor does not want to believe and therefore yeah i think that if you were, if it was something along those lines uh where the creature is in communication maybe not quite constantly but definitely sporadically um uh, to to sort
1: of break down the the victor Frankenstein character that could really work mm-hmm. yeah. Another thing that I had brought up in the the book club that I thought would be a kind of a fun idea is to have um, a dungeon where at some point in the dungeon, there's a room that was at one point occupied by some mad scientist. And the PCs, if they want to, could reanimate something here. And if they're able to, they're probably going to, because mm-hmm. that's how PCs roll. <laughs> and I think it would be really fun that if the PCs like, didn't really follow up too much on what was going to happen here... I don't know, like 15 sessions down the road when they've completely forgotten about this thing, suddenly this thing is back. And it's now, when they left it, it was kind of like this gibbering, um, um, kind of unaware creature. But now it has learned and it has language and it's fucking furious and wants revenge on all of them. Like, I think that could be kind of a fun way to... Of, yeah, you I'm left me the story. behind. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> um. There is actually uh, a latter-day White Wolf uh, game that is called Promethean, The Created. Oh, Mm -hmm. and it's exactly like each of the, the, the creatures instead of being a vampire or whatever, you're basically a, a, a created creature, like a Frankenstein monster. Cool. Uh, And, uh, but, but, and, and this is sort of them sort of having fun because you can, you can actually be created uh, via stuff, more modern technology, like for instance, radioactivity Mm -hmm. Um, and, but you can't stick around anywhere. So, I don't know if anyone's thinking about it but that's the the Hulk TV show <laughs> where mm-hmm. Bruce Banner had because the thing is if if a created stays around a certain area a horrible because they have some sort of um they they're not exactly they're sort of like lovecraftian in that sense that they, they defy the, the the laws of the universe something horrible will happen to the place if they stay too long right. uh, and so one of the a- yeah, one of the, the backgrounds is that uh, Centralia, uh, Pennsylvania is like the the entire coal fire underground right, is the result of is <laughs> the result of one of the created sticking around there for a little too long.
2: Uh, there you go. <laughs> so you're saying that uh, Mark Zuckerberg was actually one of these creators, and that uh, Facebook is, <laughs> you know, <meta. laughs> uh, I,
0: I, you know what? That's an interesting. Uh, that that would be an interesting. Uh, side side thing, right? Uh, yeah. Is a digital created. Uh, mm-hmm. it, will it destroy the internet? I don't know. Right.
2: Yeah. It's out there. It's in there. It's you can't put you quite put your hand on it, your finger on it, because it's you know it's, it's in, virtu- the, in the a ether. A virtual
1: a virtual yeah. creature. Yeah. So I've heard some people say that this is perhaps the first work of science fiction. What are your thoughts on that? So I know that um, Brian Aldiss uh,
0: called called it one of the first works of science fiction. I don't know. Uh, I I I I agree that there is scientific um, some scientific ideas of the time or an exploration of what science, how science can change things but it's very contained um and and i feel like uh there is something to that but i would probably categorize this much much more uh, like perhaps 50, 50 like 50 45 and 45 percent um as gothic and horror and maybe the remainder is science fiction mm-hmm. i i would not and and that's no like i i, I love science fiction but yeah you know, i also think that science fiction has like the the people in the genre have like this chip on their shoulder that they need to re they need to feel like they claim older works that are literary for some reason mm-hmm. and uh there is some science fictional concepts in there but i don't think it's Really yeah, I think the science is acting. not
2: the point, right? Is, is the way that science fiction, you know, or certainly, certainly not Campbellian science fiction.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I think uh, you well yeah, it's not hard
1: science fiction, that's right? For right sure. That's for sure. <laughs> but maybe you're touching
2: on something that um, uh, any sort of uh, sort of uh, minority or outcast group will often look back, and science fiction fandom certainly thought of itself that way for a long time, and try to claim. Uh, various aspects of the past, because they've been denied that in a lot of ways. And so here, we are looking for serious literature. Here's our antecedents in serious literature, the same way, and not to trivialize it, but the same way that any, again, oppressed minority go, oh, look, there was this person and they, they represented us before anyone knew that we were there, you know, or acknowledged us, you know, whether it's LGBT or people of color or any other oppressed minority, we can point back and say, no, look, we've been here all along. Right.
0: Well, I, I think it's also, um, and, and, not to disparage it because, you know, like, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, a, a social justice warrior type of thing. And I'm not disparaging it. I'm just saying, because I am, I consider myself a social justice warrior as well, but it's, it's doing the thing where it's not only claiming, uh, Claiming it as science fiction, but also as a project of like, well, see, women write science fiction. Mary Shelley was a science fiction writer, and mm-hmm. and that's that's fine. Uh, I I I have no no bones. I, I have no bones to pick with that. It's just simply I, I don't necessarily agree that
1: it's the science fictional book that people sure. want to claim. Well. It is about time for us to start wrapping things up. I'm curious, Carlo, do you have any final thoughts about Frankenstein, something you really wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to get to, or maybe just kind of a summary of your thoughts overall? I will now forevermore uh, recommend uh,
0: Frankenstein as a treatise uh, You know that is pro-vegetarian.
1: Uh, yes, <laughs> that, that was something Although, that just blew my is mind. It, or is it saying that vegetarians are monsters? Well, no, no, because she she
0: she wrote that uh, Prometheus bringing fire to humanity was a bit of a monster himself because then that led us down the path to eating uh, cooking, uh, cooking, cooking meat, meat. and yeah. and eating it. Uh, so yes, I, I I do believe that there are vegetarian themes. Uh, you know, uh, Peta should really uh, put their stamp on Frankenstein from here on out uh, if they really wanted to to increase
1: uh, readership. (laughs) Well, and speaking of that, if you live in the Cleveland area like I do, and you are vegetarian or vegan, my buddy Dave Huffman has a great vegan bacon company called Bitchy Vegan Homo, and they make incredible cookies, incredible brownies, and incredible cakes so if you're interested in one of those, just Google bitchy vegan homo and there you can find, find out more about that. But, um, <laughs> that is an amazing name. <laughs> it is. And Carlo, are there any projects you're working on right now that you'd like our listeners to know about? Any uh, baking projects, perhaps?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, over at Podside Picnic, we're baking up. Uh, the Year of the New Sun. So we just started a reading series with uh, – we're going to start reading five chapters every two weeks of the Book of the New Sun. Uh, we, cool. we just had our, um, I, I'm going to guess that by the time this comes out, we may have already had our second, uh, uh, episode out. Um, but, but we definitely at time of recording, we have at least chapters one, uh, I through V of, uh, of the, uh, shadow of the torturer, mm-hmm. um, this is, uh, I think, this is my second reread of Shadow of the Torturer, uh, but this will be my first time trying to get all the way through it. Nice. Uh, so, uh, but as they say, you you can never read Wolf; you
1: only ever reread him. So, <laughs> <laughs> and we actually covered uh, Gene Wolfe's The Shadow of the Torturer back in December. Oh, excellent! Well, yeah. Well, ma- maybe we can have you on for for some perspectives. Uh, that could be fun. That'd be a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, and uh, talk about unreliable narrators there. Oh, you know, so.
0: oh well, you know, if, if you wanted a a perfect example of the goodest boy ever in the <laughs> universe that <laughs> never did
1: anything wrong, right. Severian is your guy. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. Right. And Carlo, how can folks find you online? If, 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 if you want to be found, that is, I don't know <laughs> For, yeah, it,
0: basically uh, I, you can find my website at a line of ink.com. Uh, I obviously at podside picnic at patreon.com slash podside picnic. And also, um, you know, I, I go through waves over on Twitter. So if you, if you want to just watch dumb jokes of mine, read dumb jokes of mine on Twitter uh, at KJY one zero six, six is the place to go. Um, uh, I, I am currently slowly working on more stories for all of you who like to read. So, uh, I, I, I don't know when, but I have something coming out sometime this year, uh, through pseudopod, the, um, the horror podcast. And, uh, so, um, also, Oh, I, I, I almost forgot. Uh, I just recently had a. Uh, Horror uh, story come out in Seize the Press magazine uh, called Vanishing, which should be at
1: some point in time soon-ish, free to read online for everyone. Perfect. And this episode is dropping March 21st. So we'll be a little bit in the future when this episode drops. So maybe it'll be up by then. Seems appropriate for Book of the New Sun, actually. actually. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. So, Hoy, where can folks find us?
0: All right.
2: Yes. Uh, If you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, Um, such as Apple Podcasts. Uh, You can drop us a note at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. And Jeff, how about our Patreon?
1: Yes, so uh, patrons of our show are able to vote on the books that we cover, which is exciting and fun. Um, So, for example, the next two books we'll be covering, episode 116 will be on Ursula K. Le Guin's The Tombs of Atuan*, and episode 117 is going to be on Clark Ashton Smith's The End of the Story. Uh, Presently, um, when this episode drops we will be voting on what we're covering for episode 125. And the theme for that poll is going to be Dying Earth. And the books that are up for vote are Michael Shea's A Quest for Symbolists, Lynn Carter's The Barbarian of World's End, M. John Harrison's The Pastel City, and Gene Wolfe's The Claw of the Conciliator. Uh, uh, So, yeah, we've got some good stuff there. (laughs) Also, the... um, The polls for episodes 121 and 122 are in. For 121, we're covering N.K. Jemison's The Fifth Season. For 122, we're covering E.R. Edison's The Worm or Boris. So very fun, cool, exciting stuff coming up. Also, our guests are able to join us for our pre-show book club, which we record and release to our patrons. Today, we are joined by Robert Coleman, Rick Byrne, Brandon Cruz, Dan Alexander, and Adam Styers. We had a really fun conversation. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons as well. Thank you to Adam Monnier, Andy Action, Andrew Sternick, Peter Martino, Eric Hallstrom, Gentle Reader, Noah Green, David Bowman, David Moreau, Sean Birch, William Suter, Eric Hicks, Vasily Calamon, Rose City Politics, Darren Dumez, Richard Ruane, Thomas Edward, Solomon Foster, Eric Johnson, Robbie Fioto, Jason White, Andrew Brown, and Andrew Cairns. Thank you all so much for your support. It means a lot to us. And if you would like to also show your support, please head on over to patreon.com slash club.
2: All right, Carlo, it's such a pleasure to have you on. It's always an honor to meet wise funny people like you <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes yeah. th- thank you for both of those things i'm very flattered uh but th- thank you both for having me on uh this <laughs> is a blast uh you-, you gave me a great excuse to revisit a a a, a well-deserved uh classic carlo yay yay, yay!
1: crowd goes, wild.
0: <laughs> goes, goes wild. wild all right everybody see you yeah. in the stacks. Yeah. read on
1: the library is closed